0: everyone, I bring greetings from Sydney, Australia, um, it has been such a delight to come here. Um, I have been overwhelmed especially by food, that's all I seem to talk about in the last couple of days is uh, the beautiful food that I've experienced, um, especially for my hosts uh, David and Jess. David makes the best cup of coffee possibly in the world. Um, that's a big call cool because I actually lived in Melbourne for a while and I thought Melbourne coffee was pretty good, but whoa, he makes a great cup of coffee. So I feel incredibly uh, welcomed. I think it's such a privilege uh, for me to be here to share with you, and I hope that you'll be encouraged. This morning, uh, I hope to do what normally takes approximately six months when I teach at a Bible college. <laughs> a theology of work, a brief theology of work. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey today through the good and the bad and the redeemed of work. Are you up for that? Can we do it? Oh, that's not enthusiastic enough. Come on. Can we do it? Yes, we can, of course. So when I say the word work, what do you think of? I wonder what comes to mind. And when I say the word work, I mean... Anything you do, paid or unpaid, whatever you do with purpose, whatever you do with intention. What comes to mind? You see, I don't know if you realize this, but there aren't many good synonyms of the word work. I've gone to a thesaurus, and these are the sorts of words that come up. Toil. Drudgery. Slog travail. And in Australia, we call it hard yakka. (laughs) They're not very encouraging words, are they? The grind of work, the exertion of work. Work often seems like a hard thing. And if we look at movies, movies that are set in workplaces, they're not fantastic. Uh, Now, the first one probably came out way before most of you were born. Uh, Dolly Parton in 9 to 5, perky little uh, movie about work. But in that movie, it was all about sexual harassment at work, which is often a problem even today. And then there was a movie by George Clooney called Up in the Air, which was about redundancy and termination. Not very happy topics. And then recently, we've had two movies which I won't recommend, (laughs) called Horrible Bosses 1 and Horrible Bosses 2. And they were all about, believe it or not, horrible bosses. (laughs) So even in movies, we see that work is not a good thing. It's not a happy thing. It's not a joyful thing. Work is hard. Uh, There's a famous poet, Ogden Nash, and he sort of sums it up. He says, if you don't want to work, you have to work, to earn enough money so that you won't have to work. (laughs) And really, the assumption here is that nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to work. And what all these things tell us is that most people's theology of work, understanding of work, begins with the bad of work, begins with the fall, begins with this sense that work is cursed. Work is broken. But that is not the whole picture of what work is in the sight of God. Let me pray for us as we consider this. Dear Lord, I pray that as we consider work, you'll help us to overcome this feeling that work is just a bad thing, something to be avoided, something to be endured. I pray, Lord, that you would help us also to see the good of work that is possible when we work with you, and that you would also help us to understand how you desire to redeem work, and through our work to redeem the world, with Jesus and for his name's sake, amen. So let's start at the beginning with God at work. In Genesis one, we have this amazing portrayal of God working. He seems to work so easily he actually creates things just by speaking them into being. It's an amazing power that he has. And in fact, the word that's used in Genesis, uh, Bereshit, to talk about his work is a, sort of, is a word that's not used of anyone else. No one else has that, that power and that capability to make something for nothing. However, later, at, just at the beginning of Genesis 2, there is a word there when God rests from his work, which talks about, is also a word that we use when we talk about work. So it's like God also understands our work as well. But here he is creating the world, uh, bringing the world into being. And he creates these three kingdoms, light and dark and sky and sea and also the earth. And then he fills in these kingdoms with the sun and the moon, with the birds and the fish and with the animals and plants on the earth and then he creates human beings. And he tells us that we have this wonderful opportunity of working with him. In Genesis one26 to 28, as you can read, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This, of course, is known as the creation mandate. You might have heard it referred to as that. And what God is doing is actually inviting us into the ongoing work of imagining what is possible with creation, of filling creation, of being abundant, of ordering what is going on. That's part of our stewardship responsibilities. Now, some of the words that are used here, like rule and subdue, they sound quite sinister. But I think that is because we've actually abused this responsibility, God told us to steward his creation, but instead of that, we have often overstepped that, and we've actually taken out more than we should have, and we've destroyed more, more things than we should have, and our world is actually in a quite a difficult place. So those words seem like sinister words, but actually God wants to work with us. He wants us to be stewards and care for this beautiful creation that he's given us to play in. In Genesis 2:15 to 20, we see this beautiful picture where God says, he's made this, and he says, who is going to work in this garden with me? He says that in Genesis 2, 5. And then from 2, 15 to 20, he actually see, says these words, the first commandment that's given to human beings is this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. You see what happens? God actually wants to work with us in this creation. So he invites the human being to actually work the earth and to keep the garden. And that's sort of hard physical work that we're familiar with. And then he gives human beings a different kind of work, an amazing work. The responsibility of naming the animals. It's like all the knowledge work that we do. Now, this was a very significant work. We know that in the Bible, names carry huge meaning. They often tell you something about the essence of the person. They're very significant things. Probably your parents were very careful about what they chose to name you. And your names have special meaning. And here God is saying, I want you, the human being, to name the animals, to call out the essence of each animal. What a responsibility. How significant is that? So in summary, this is the good of our work. We are made in the image of a God who works, who takes delight in his work as a very good thing. Secondly, God chooses to work with us, and he chooses us to work with him. And thirdly, God wants us, wants us to use our work as a means of honoring him and serving others, of stewarding this beautiful creation that he's given us. Is work good? Yes. Is work good? Yes. <laughs> but sometimes it doesn't feel so good, does it? Sometimes we struggle to see our work as good. And I don't want to hide the reality of some of the workplaces that we are in and some of the difficult things that we experience. Now, I'm going to show you a picture. I'm sure this is only what happens in Australia. (laughs) And this doesn't happen often in Australia, but sometimes it feels like this, doesn't it? Sometimes work feels like this. Sometimes work feels as if we are under threat, as if we are under pressure. We struggle to see work as good when we're weary, when we're overwhelmed by the expectations of others, when we've been underpaid, when we've been denied our rights, when we're experiencing conflict, and even when we're bored, when we're just weary of the work that we do and it's not stimulating enough and it's hard to see that we're actually achieving anything. And this is the impact of sin. It actually affects every single area of our work. So work was good, but something happened. What happened? How did sin come in? How did sin affect work? Well, in Genesis 3, we read the story. We see that evil actually enters the garden. And Adam and Eve disobey God, and they sin. This amazing thing happens I sort of, I laugh a little bit at what happens, uh, even though it's not really funny, but you know the first thing when God confronts the human beings and said, you did something wrong, didn't you? Do you know what Adam's instant response is? He blames Eve. And then he also blames God. He says, this woman that you sent to me, (laughs) we do that blame game, don't we? What does Eve do? She blames the snake. (laughs) We blame others all the time. And I don't know about your workplace, but I often see that happen in my workplace as well, this blaming process. But there are consequences for sin, for the sin that has entered. So God speaks to the woman and she talks about childbirth. And childbirth is going to be different now. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. But you'll notice that it is the process of childbirth which is cursed it's not the product of childbirth it's not the child the process of childbirth is going to be hard and painful and then God talks to the to the man and he talks about his work and what his work is going to be like to Adam he said because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you you must not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. I wonder if you feel that in your work, if your work is like painful toil. If the thorns and thistles actually are the frustrations and the distractions of work that just interrupt your work and make it much less productive than it might have been. If you can only achieve things by the sweat of your brow. And frankly, in Penang, I think every day there's a lot of sweat. <laughs> but especially in your work, if you feel like you have to work so hard to make anything happen. This is all the impact of sin. Sin and we see it impact on all the different sorts of work that we do. I find it with my housework. I clean and clean and clean and clean, turn my back and it's dirty again. (laughs) And then, when you study, it's hard when you study. Knowledge just doesn't seem to stick in there. You have to keep memorizing it. And there's so many things that can distract you from reading your books and writing your essays. In every area of work we do, We see the impact of this sin. And it's not just in that hard work that we do. In Genesis 4, we begin to see how this impact keeps going. In Genesis 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. They've been working, but we see that what springs up between them is jealousy. Cain is jealous of Abel and the way God responds to the work that Abel is doing. So what did he do? He killed his brother. I don't recommend that for your work, mates, okay? (laughs) Don't let jealousy and ambition get that bad, okay? (laughs) But right away, we see the impact on relationship as well and our working relationships. We see this drive towards selfish ambition that actually comes into the workplace. Work has now become a source of competition It has become a source of conflict. But I want to reiterate that it's the process of work that is cursed. And the relationships of work feel the impact of that and the systems at work are frustrating, but it is not the work itself. Work can still be a place of good, even though sin has entered the world. We can see the good of work, especially when we work with God. So I've had lots of conversations with different people about the good they're able to achieve through their work. So I've had conversations with teachers who talk about the amazing breakthroughs that they were able to achieve with children in their teaching. I've talked to an aged care worker uh, actually here last night who has done this amazing work with these older people and just seen them uh, emerge Sometimes from parts of their dementia as she sings songs to them and invites them into singing and music, she sees this transformation in people. That is such good work. And I've spoken to a senior government official who was able to craft legislation that would be a positive force for good for generations. Work can still be a place of great good. But work can also be a place where it's bad and frankly quite ugly. (laughs) Work can be difficult, it can be a source of stress, it can be a place where we have to make difficult ethical decisions at times. It can be a place where we feel the pressure of conflict at work. So let's just recap what we've learnt from these first few chapters of Genesis. There are three things I want to say about the good of work, that we are made in the image of a God who works and who enjoys and takes delight in his work. God chooses to work with us and he chooses us to work with him. He wants to use our good work to accomplish his purposes, as we've heard some examples of. But there are three realities of the consequences of sin as well. That work is characterized by toil. It's hard. That work is not as productive as it should be. And our working relationships are often fractured. However, and I want this to be something really important that you remember. In the Bible, sin never has the last word. Sin never has the last word. Sin is never the end of the story. Do I have an amen to that? Amen. Amen. And so, we don't want to finish on the bad of work. Bob Thune has said this uh, really beautiful thing. It's important that we see both the goodness of work in God's original creation and the struggle of work under the fall. It's important that we see both the goodness of work in God's original creation and the struggle of work under the fall. If we only see the good, we'll be frustrated when things don't go as they should. And if we only see the bad we'll have a hard time doing our work for the glory of God. Work is not all good, but work is not all bad either. It is part of God's good creation, which has been tainted by the fall. And God is at work to redeem work. So let's have a look now to how God redeems work. And what I want to give you a bit of an image for that you can take away into all the different places that God takes you, all the different contexts that he has placed you in during the week, I want you to think of yourselves as embedded redeemers. Embedded redeemers. Now, that probably means nothing right now, so let me give you an example of what that looks like. You see, uh, if you came last night or yesterday, you would know that my background is as a journalist. And something has really changed in the way that journalists cover war. Uh, these days. We've seen it in the last couple of wars that have happened. Journalists actually become embedded with the military as they cover wars. I don't know if you've seen that or noticed that. They're often dressed in camouflage gear, they're often talking in the military sites and they're describing what's happening during the war. But there's something really important here, that even though they are virtually part of the military, they have a different purpose. Their purpose is not a military purpose. Their purpose is to report what's going on in the war. They also have a different employer. They're not employed by a general. (laughs) They're employed by their editor, their news editor, by their news company. And the third thing is that the outcome is different. They're not there to fight. They're there to inform people, to tell people what's going on. It's exactly the same if we think of ourselves as embedded redeemers. Our purpose is slightly different to the people that are around us in the workplace or in the community or wherever we are. Our purpose is actually to honor God and to serve others. That's our primary purpose wherever we are. Our ultimate employer is God. That's who actually we work for. And in terms of the outcome, the outcome that we hope for, as well as doing our work, is that we give people a taste of the kingdom, a a sense of the fragrance of the kingdom, something that just entices them to know more of what the kingdom is like, to ask questions, to seek, to know who this Jesus is that inspires us. And we have some really good teaching about this in the Bible. The Bible tells us what's it like to promote the gospel in a pagan workplace. Now last night I talked about the older dude, Peter, and what he wrote to us in the letter of 1 Peter. I really recommend that you read that letter and see what it tells us about how we can promote the gospel. But today I want to talk briefly about Daniel. Now Daniel, if you remember, was actually someone who was in Babylon. He was someone who was one of the brightest scholars and leaders in Israel, and he'd been taken away into captivity in Babylon. Now, I don't know if you remember the story, but what actually happened was that he was taken by Nebuchadnezzar, who actually had this brilliant social engineering experience. Nebuchadnezzar knew that the way that he could actually control the captive nations was by taking their most unbelievably brilliant and wonderful young men, and then actually training them up in his household. That was his whole goal. That was his whole school. And so that's what he did to Daniel. He took Daniel, he took him aside, and he actually decided that what he would do is he would try and get Daniel and his friends to become absorbed into the Babylonian culture. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 1. Now, I wonder if your workplace feels like a foreign place. Daniel's here in this Babylonian palace and it must have felt so weird. It looked different. They had very different values to him. The people were different. It felt a bit strange. And sometimes that's what the workplace is for us as well, as Christians, when we go into it. It just feels different. They behave differently. Their values are certainly very different. But sometimes... We face very real challenges, places and times when we have to make a stand. And Daniel experienced that as well. In Daniel 1, uh, verse 5, we hear that the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they would enter the king's service. But Daniel, in verse 8, says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, what was wrong with the food and the wine? Well, there were probably some things wrong with it. Some people, up until 30 years ago, scholars believed that it was because the food might have been offered to idols, and perhaps that's true. But almost certainly, the food that was being offered to him would have broken the food laws that we read about in Leviticus, So there would have been probably pigs, um, probably exotic birds that would have been amongst the food that was being offered to him. As well as that, we know recently that uh, in Babylon, they had this habit of drinking wine mixed with blood. Doesn't sound great to me, but (laughs) that was something that they uh, often gave to people, especially in somewhere like the palace that might have been offered to these men. Now that is definitely prohibited by the food laws so maybe that's what meant, Daniel meant uh, by the food defiling him. But I think that there's something more at stake here, here. You see, this meal is not just a meal. It actually symbolized something much, much greater. We read in Proverbs 23, verses 1 to 3, when you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. I feel like Penang's the wrong place to talk like this, but <laughs> <laughs> but there is something that happens when someone invites you to dine with them, especially if you know that part of the reason you're being invited to dine with them is that that person wants to influence you in some way. You see, Daniel probably knew that about a hundred years earlier, Hezekiah had sat down at the table of the king of Babylon and he had actually been lured away from following God's plan. So be careful about some of the choices that you make. On the other hand, if you make a stand and you do excellent work, sometimes there's a big difference. So what we see is that Daniel did make that stand. He refused to eat that food and he convinced the king to allow him to eat the food that he chose to eat. They just ate vegetables, so it was, they weren't going to be offered any meat that hadn't been prepared properly. And they thrived under those conditions. But more than that, actually, they worked really, really well. So we read in Daniel 1, verse 17, "'To these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds.' At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Wow. But I believe there's a rule here that we can take hold of. When we are obedient to God in those important steps, we will receive his blessing to do wonderful work for him. Even if this is work in a pagan place. But God will enable his people to stand out, to be distinctive and to actually show people what true wisdom is. This is what actually happened. And uh, in chapter 2 and following, we actually have this experience where it is only Daniel who is able to interpret dreams and this particular dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And there's this amazing moment when Nebuchadnezzar actually says, surely your God, he says to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. What an amazing thing. The king has taken in Daniel so that he will make Daniel believe in his gods and behave like his people. And what has happened? God has empowered Daniel so he has actually influenced the king to actually acknowledge the God of Israel, the one true God. It's an incredible turnaround. Later there is a a plot to try and undermine Daniel, but they realize they just cannot do it. He's too clever. His work is too excellent. They're unable to actually impact on the work that he's doing there. Now, it reminds me of what we can read about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. As I said, this is another reading about what it's like to be at work in pagan times. So 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12, it says... Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's exactly what Daniel had experienced, isn't that true? So how can we do this? How can we live as exiles, as embedded redeemers in our workplaces? How can we actually use our good work to honour God? What are some concrete things that we can do? I've got five ideas for you that you can go out and do this time tomorrow. First of all, I think it's important to do what Daniel did, and at times you need to know when you need to make a stand. I've had to do that a couple of times in my life. Sometimes it costs you your job, and that's, that's really difficult. But often I've found that when I've made a stand and I've been able to explain it well, then actually, in a way, God has really blessed that decision and actually impacted on the workplace in some way. So know when you need to make a stand. Know what you are not going to do when people ask you to do it. Secondly, as we saw that Daniel did, do excellent work and ask God to enable you to do excellent work. Ask God to fill you with wisdom for the work that you do. Remember in James he says if if anyone wants wisdom, just ask God for it. So ask God for the wisdom so that you can work excellently and give him the glory. <laughs> and thirdly, work for God Because after all, he is our ultimate employer. In Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 23, we read, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And at the end of verse 24, it says, For it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So that's how we should work. We have a different employer. We have our bosses, our human bosses, but we have the Lord that actually is our ultimate employer. So we need to work for him. He is the one that we go every day and we think, I'm going to please the Lord. That is who I'm going to please. And I want you to do kingdom work in your work. What does that look like? Well, it's living out the kingdom values. It's living out hospitality and generosity and love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and showing some self-control. It's all those things. Live out those kingdom values in the workplace. And fifthly, I want you to be open to being used by God to do something special. Now, sometimes people have the opportunity to be in the right place at the right time to do something amazing for God something that just people sit up and notice, and it really makes a massive difference. I want you to tell you you about one guy who did that. His name is Dan Price. Um, I'm going to show you a picture of him. He actually looks a bit like Jesus. Um, (laughs) You don't have to look like this. (laughs) Well, Western Jesus, anyway. (laughs) You don't have to look like this uh, to actually, you know, do something amazing for God, you know. You don't have to have a beard, women. But anyway... (laughs) Dan Price was head of an organisation, a startup called Gravity Payments, and his startup was very successful. Uh, he was part of the IT boom, and very quickly his business grew and he became very successful. He had a multi million dollar salary. But there came a moment, um, actually, the story was that he was talking to one of him, his employees, and his employees were explaining how difficult it was to live on the wage that he was being paid. And Dan Price suddenly had this moment of revelation. He was being paid much more than he could ever imagine spending. And this employee, faithful employee of his, was being paid not enough to actually live on. So Dan Price decided to change all the salary structure in his organisation. He actually lifted all the salaries up to a certain level, and he reduced his salary to exactly the same level. Can you imagine the CEO of the organization being paid as much as the least paid employee? Now some people thought this was fantastic. And he had the opportunity when this got out to actually tell people that part of his reason for doing this was because he was a Christian. And he believed that he wanted to raise people up. He believed that everyone was made in the image of God, everyone had dignity, and he felt that this was the way he could actually express that in his workplace. But Dan Price also received a lot of criticism, and some of it actually was from Christians who said, Don't start doing that. because everyone will expect to be paid the same amount as the head of an organisation. And they had lots of reasons why this was going to be a really bad idea. In fact, some people took out court cases against him to try and prevent him doing what he was doing. It's amazing. However, I saw a recent story, a story from August last year, where he talked about how he had gone through that rocky time, he was still fulfilling this belief that he had of giving everyone a living wage in his organisation, And him reducing his own expectations to live at the same wage. And he said his business was thriving. In spite of going through that rocky time, his business was now thriving. And he saw that as a blessing from God. I find that story incredibly challenging. But I am so thrilled that God is receiving the honour for what this one person was doing. And Dan Price was just in the right place at the right time to challenge a whole load of people. And God has used that to actually honour himself through Dan. Now, I'm not saying if you own a business, I'm not saying this is what you have to do necessarily. (laughs) You've actually got to honour what God lays on your heart. That's what Dan did. But know that occasionally there is a moment in your workplace when God just gives you the opportunity of having an impact for him. And you need to be ready for that. You need to see when that moment comes along and you need to seize it. I don't think when Dan Price made that decision, I don't think he knew that that story would go global, that he would receive the exposure that he did. But to his credit, what he did was actually use that as a means of glorifying God. And I hope you do that too. I'm going to leave you with this quote from David White. David White was a guy. He actually worked in PR and marketing. And uh, funny story. He was in the boardroom one day, and he said he almost audibly felt the call cool of God. God said, "Who are you?" And David White said, uh, "I'm David." <laughs> and then uh, he said, uh, "I work in PR and managing." And he felt God say you're my poet and so David White actually walked out of the boardroom walked out of the job and decided that he would start writing poetry and writing um, just dedicating his life to writing for God I'm not sure if any of you necessarily want to have that experience either but um, this is what David White did and he, he writes some really wise things I love this If we were to have a firm persuasion in our work, to feel that what we do is right for ourselves and good for the world at exactly the same time is one of the great triumphs of human existence. To have a firm persuasion, to set out boldly in our work, is to make a pilgrimage of our labors. To understand that the consummation of work lies not only in what we have done, but who we have become while accomplishing the task. Work at its best is one of the great human gateways to the eternal and the timeless, especially if we work with God. If we work with God for the good of the work that we can do, holding back evil and allowing God to use us as part of his plan to redeem this world, then we can give people a touch of the eternal and the timeless give touch of the transcendent Lord that we worship. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, I want to do something, um, I haven't told Pastor Isaac about this, but hopefully this is okay. I (laughs) want to do something a bit different. I wonder if you would all stand. Can you all stand? This is the last time I'm preaching at PCC here, and I, I just want to take this opportunity, if I may, to actually commission you for all the different sorts of work that you're going to do. So I want you just now to close your eyes and imagine the workplace where God has placed you. Maybe it's at home, maybe it's study, maybe it's in the community, maybe it's the neighbourhood, maybe it's some volunteer work you do, maybe it's the workplace. Whatever it is, I want you to imagine yourself there. And I'm going to pray for you. Father God, see these beautiful people here. They are ready, as we sang earlier, to live their lives for you. They are ready to hand themselves over to you, Lord, and they want to cooperate with you to do good work for you, Lord. They want to cooperate with you, Lord, to hold back the evil and the sin that they see around them. And Lord, they want to cooperate with you to be part of your great work of redeeming this world. And so, Lord, I commission them in the name of Jesus to go out into those places of work and to be your people in those places to be embedded redeemers, to be Jesus to those who are around them. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable them, that you give them amazing wisdom, that you give them courage, you give them patience, you give them persistence to do this great work that you have asked them to do. And I pray, Lord, that they would be so equipped and empowered by your spirit, that, Lord, people would see the work that they do, and they would give you the honor, that they would know the source of where this work comes from, and they would praise the name of Jesus. And we all said, Amen.